Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wartum Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Bo Bruskern, co-founder and CEO of Landed Fintech, one of the world's leading fintech events and media companies. In this episode, we talk about Bo's career, what led him down the path of entrepreneurship, and the significant challenges his company has experienced in light of COVID, as well as how they have adapted to the new environment. Bo also talked about Landed's upcoming online conference scheduled for September 29 through October 1st. This year's agenda will feature over 230 speakers and 1,500 companies. Landed was kind enough to offer a 15% discount for any Wharton Fintech podcast listener using the promo code Wharton 15%. In turn, we at Wharton Fintech pledged to donate the proceeds of our commission to First Generation Investors, a nonprofit that teaches high school students in underserved communities the power of investing. And now please join me in a very fun conversation with Bo Bruskern. Bo, thank you for joining us on the Words and Fintech podcast. Extremely excited and honored to have you here. And we start by hearing about your background and a little bit about how you ended up in this position. Thanks, Miguel. It's a great pleasure to be here. And I'm excited to, uh, to have a conversation with you about fintech and uh, where it's headed. So my personal background, I grew up in Tacoma, Washington. I was a, a pretty privileged upper middle class kid, went to private school, Charles Wright Academy in, in Tacoma, worked really hard, got into Dartmouth College, and was a literature major. Thought I was going to be a writer or a teacher or something along those lines. But uh, my first job out of school brought me to Colorado, and it was a finance job. And I absolutely fell in love with finance and the challenges of business. I especially loved the challenges of forecasting, of what I later learned about valuation and the complexities there and risk analysis. And those things have stayed with me for a long time. Fascinating. So you kind of have had an entrepreneurial bug over the last 20 years. I mean, Lended is not your first venture. So tell us about this bug and where, where did this come from? Because not, not everyone who goes into finance ends up being an entrepreneur. Very true. i tell you what, I believe I've done a lot of soul searching about this one because being an entrepreneur is not easy. And there are times in my life where I'm like, why did I do this? You know, what brought me here? And as close as I can figure, it was conversations around the dinner table with my parents and my brother. Growing up, my dad used to tell stories and he's a great storyteller. And he used to tell stories about people who came from nothing and made something. And those were the those are the hero stories that I knew growing up. So the entrepreneurial bug for me was, it was fun, it was enjoyable, it was safe. It was all these things to be at, be at a corporation that was financial services company to eventually make my way into private equity, which was great. And then venture capital. Um, so I went to business school at, at UCLA. I graduated in 01. And part of that program that I was in, uh, which is called the Deutschman Venture Fellows, opens the doors for me in venture capital. I ended up working for five years for a VC firm and living in Silicon Valley and doing that, you know, that whole gambit. In fact, one of my mentors, I'm going to get back to the entrepreneurial bug, I promise, but this sets a scene a little bit. 
one of my mentors was a class of 97 Wharton grad, Michael Kim, a brilliant guy. And that was, it should have been the pinnacle for me. I was on the partner track. I was in Silicon Valley doing deals, placing big bets, but I wasn't building anything of my own. And for family reasons, we, my wife and I and, and our two kids at the time moved back to Colorado. That sort of took us out of Silicon Valley. And then it was time. And it was time to sort of heed that call, that itch that was in me. And at the time, this was 05. The venture landscape in Colorado was not strong. It's, I would say, I would argue it's still not, not terribly strong, but so much has changed in VC and in funding that it's, uh, it's become less important to be a self-sustaining region. But at any rate, there was no venture job here. So I had to build something. And that was the catalyst, but it wasn't the why. The why was build something from nothing. And that traces back to those dinnertime stories. Now, if you'll allow me, there is a real danger in over-investing in, in those childhood hero stories because... As I mentioned earlier, I grew up pretty privileged and I went to these fine schools and I got this great job. And so I don't think I realized this, but in my deep, dark consciousness, I couldn't come, I couldn't build something of my own. I couldn't come from nothing unless I tore it all down. So I had a lot of failures along the way with my various ventures. This is company number four for me. And they were not all rocket ship successes by any means. I had partnership failures. I had near-death experiences, struggles to make payroll for years on end. And I think all of that was essentially my way of touching the bottom, right? And now I can claim, yeah, I, I built this. I did this on my own. This is something I can claim to have come from nothing because I really did, or you know, obviously in collaboration with my partners and so on. But but I really did shed those previous skins of privilege to get to where I am. So that's how I interpret it. It's a complex question, but I think there's, I think there's something there in terms of that, the entrepreneurial bug being handed to me by my entrepreneurial father. At the end of the day, the market doesn't really care where you come from, right? It just cares about the product. That is true. <laughs> If I could internalize that, maybe I have. Maybe I've finally learned that lesson. <laughs> I'm uh, 15 years, almost 15 years into my entrepreneurial career, and I'm starting to get a grip on what matters and what doesn't. And ego doesn't matter. <laughs> I think it's also a little bit ironic that you had to leave Silicon Valley to become an entrepreneur, right? So usually people go to Silicon Valley for that. Oh, I... I I preach that story all day long. It's Silicon Valley is, is special. It's wonderful. There is a reason it exists and it is a, there's nothing like it in the world, but there are so many reasons to leave Silicon Valley to build something of substance. And, uh, and that was, it wasn't a choice I made. It was sort of almost forced on me because of family situations and so on, but it turned out to be absolutely a good thing for me and a key to my eventual, if you want to call it success, but the path that I'm on couldn't have been done from Palo Alto, Menlo Park. Fascinating. Now tell us about Lended. Why FinTech? Well, I guess I was drawn there. I went from, again, sort of that focus on technology and venture to a, my first business was a, 
a complex security valuation business, pure service business. We're selling our hours in exchange for dollars. And we were taking advantage of a regulatory essential sort of change in the market where all of a sudden private company valuations were essential. And it was a super simple business model. And that led me down a path that led me back into technology. But it was through the love of complex financial puzzles that we eventually got to this place where we were starting to value securities that related to fintechs. And the fintech part really drew me in to the point where we, I and a couple of partners eventually founded a fintech. And it was a, a company that, an asset management firm that invested in peer-to-peer lending securities, still does. I have very little to do with it now, but it was a company that I started and then handed off to professional managers. But, and that was the beginning. So we actually founded a fintech and we loved that idea of sort of democratizing access to higher yielding securities and providing a way for individuals to safely, securely, and really easily access better than a 0% return on their bank account or their whatever, whatever was available outside of publicly traded securities. Right. And what was your initial vision for Landed? And tell us about the evolution of the company over the last seven or eight years. Sure. The original idea was really just to teach ourselves a little bit more about the industry that we had launched into. So we started this asset management firm. We knew some of the executives at the Prosper and Lending Club and so on. And we really felt like there was an ecosystem here that was loosely tied. And yet it was, the, it was a moment in time where there was so much desire for collaboration that we could capture value from that. And it wasn't conference value. It wasn't media value. It was we need to learn more about this business we're in. And if you look at old industries where, so law would be a really good one, accounting would be another good one to examine and say, when you look firm to firm, the knives are out, right? These firms are so fiercely competitive because there is a fixed pool of opportunity. In new industries that are expanding massively, there's so much more collaboration because everyone's like, there's more opportunity than we can handle. So let's kind of lock arms and to use a rugby analogy, let's ruck over this market together as opposed to trying to go it alone. And that moment has not passed. That is still very much the feeling within the fintech industry, which is part of why I love it. And yes, companies have become more competitive, but that's within niches and between personalities and idiosyncratic stuff like that. So You know, in this time in 2013, we literally just wanted to learn more about the business and gathered some people together and decided, well, let's ticket it. Let's get some sponsors. Let's see if we can at least break even here. And we hoped, you know, we'd be a smashing success if 150, 200 people showed up. And so we rented a room in Midtown Manhattan. And the day of the event, 375 people tried to cram through the doors and we made a little bit of money and we broke fire code and it was a sweaty, hot mess. The content was awesome. The networking was awesome. And everyone came back to us and said, that was amazing. When are you going to do that again? And all of a sudden we had this, we had a new business. Uh, A couple of years later, we were doing, you know, 4,000 people a show and hiring professional events people. A couple of years after that, you know, we realized we're a media company. And that was, that was quite a, that's when our mind, that's when my mind shifted 
And I said, you know what? This is where my heart is. I love this fintech building, but I, but I think my purpose is to build this community. Oh, that, that's fascinating. And definitely landed conferences top of mind for anyone in fintech. But that also, you know, obviously there's a big elephant in the room here is that, you know, what you're describing is very foreign for the last six months, right? Those are pre-COVID times. So I imagine this has been a huge challenge for you, at least on the conference front, the media front, I imagine is doing, if not the same, but probably better. But how have you adapted and how has COVID impacted the business? Well, it was a huge wake up call. And I, you know, I went through all the stages of denial and anger. And it's just like, I mean, COVID wrecked us. It absolutely destroyed our fragile business model. An event business like ours. So yeah, I said, okay, we become a media business and we jumped into that psychologically, but did we actually do that? That was not our business model. Our business model was we generate 100% of our revenue six days a year. So we do three big events, USA and London are constant. We used to do Shanghai. We now do Miami to serve all of Latin America. And, and London is for Europe, of course. And, and the USA event is sort of a global event, but it really is focused on the North American opportunity. So six days a year, 100% of revenue. If you take one of those days away, it hurts. If you take two of those days away, and those two days are our USA conference, which generates the vast majority of our revenue and profits, we're toast. And that's exactly what happened. So we had about six weeks to totally reinvent ourselves or die. And of course, the government helped. The PPP loans, the EIDL, those things helped. We wouldn't have survived without them. But we had to lay off half of our team. And that was brutal because I'd spent, I became CEO of Lend at Fintech in September of 17. And I spent two years perfecting that team, really building it into a machine so that 2020 was going to be our best year ever. And we got slayed. So half of my team is now gone. The other half of my team, I go to and say, look, we're going to work on half wages because we can't afford anymore. So now I'm working out with 25% of my payroll (laughs) and a team that is loyal extremely hardworking and dedicated to the mission. That's the only thing that carried us through. And so, yeah, COVID was huge. But the brilliant thing, the gift that we received was we created, or we are in the midst of creating an anti-fragile business model. The more the world changes, the more chaos that is in our environment, particularly in financial services or fintech or innovation in financial services, that's our niche. The more our clientele, our audience, our community needs us. So when when we're in the midst of chaos, like we are, people are dying for answers and we're here to provide answers. We ask gnarly questions. We get experts up on stage to talk about those questions. We challenge our industry with those questions. We create collaborative collisions or creative collisions is the word I like to use in collaboration with our community. That's too many C's. But that, that, is, that is sort of what we do. That's our practice. So if we can do that on a regular basis, as opposed to three times a year or six days a year, if we can turn that into a 24-7 you know, endeavor, then we become anti-fragile. And if we can make our revenue model match that, match the delivery model, then we become a much stronger entity. And so that's the gift. Yes, it wrecked us. Yes, we seem to be surviving. 
And yes, it was super challenging. And there's no way we could have done it without a team that believed in the mission. It's been crazy, but tell you what, it's been crazy rewarding. And we're super excited about not only how we change the, you know, the practice of what we do, but these big events like Linda Fintech USA, which is coming up soon, and, and Europe, which is coming right on the heels of that, and LATAM, which is in December, those are big, almost celebration events of all the things we've been doing, all the hard work we've been doing in the past weeks and months. Yeah, no, I mean, sounds humbling and fascinating. So you're adapting the business model, obviously, but you're still keeping the conferences, right? Tell yes. us about Lended USA, which is right around the corner. It is right around the corner. So moving from a physical conference to a virtual one is, of course, a daunting challenge. It is not, you know, we took the perspective of, look, we're not going to replace a physical conference. We're not going to put, have people, you know, walking around a virtual exhibit hall and building up 3D exhibits and putting on VR headsets and stuff like that. That is just not what is happening today. But we are going to replicate the two things that we are really, really good at. And we're going to do it in a way that enhances that value through the virtual offering. And, you know, part of that putting virtual panels on stage four times a week for the past 12 weeks or whatever has taught us a great deal about how to deliver great content virtually, capture attention, how to moderate in a virtual sphere, and how to create great networking opportunities. So we've been, we've been using this opportunity to practice that art and to put on these big shows. And so in a nutshell, what we did is we took a two-day event and we took it into three days. We cut the content in half because we know we can't keep people's attention for that long. And then we leveled up. I mean, we're, we're really well known within the industry of having the best content on stage, the best speakers and the best challenges on stage anywhere. So then we cut it in half and leveled up again, meaning that we believe that this content this year is our best ever. Then we layered on the networking, one-on-one -on -one speed dating, along with other avenues for more spontaneous networking, and then some other bells and whistles that just sort of tactically encourage and enable people to get involved and to stay involved for the three days. Because the biggest challenge, of course, is keeping people's attention. So, I mean, for us, that's what we lose sleep over is how do we make sure people go from the opening keynote with Stephanie Cohen, who's the chief strategy officer at Goldman Sachs, where everyone shows up and they're like, what is Stephanie saying? To the very last panel on day three, where people are still chattering, people are still meeting, and people are still high energy and high-fiving each other virtually saying, that was amazing. When's the next one? <laughs> that, that is our goal. So yeah, it's challenging, but it's absolutely doable. And we're really excited. I think it's going to play out really well. I'm not sure we're going to want to go back to physical. I know we will. I know it will be great when we do, but I think this is going to be that good. And, and the interesting part is that I know you had very well attended events. Uh, you, you just mentioned three to 4,000, right? You can have a lot more than that, right? We can. People don't have to try. It's actually cheaper. For someone to attend because they don't have to travel. There's no hotel. I mean, I think that dynamic is interesting. It reminds me of my sister. She's a dance instructor and she used to have a class of 20, but now her class is virtual and she has, you know, a lot more than that. So you have the same opportunity, I guess. We do. And 
it is fascinating to see how the reach has expanded. We are, I think we're 44 states of the 50 in the US have somebody already registered for our conference. I didn't count the countries, but I've looked at the map and it looks like we're covering half of the earth. It's probably not, probably not at a hundred countries yet, but we might get there. It's our highest price ticket is $900 and there's zero travel. So you compare that to our highest price ticket of 3000 plus travel, plus time away from work, plus, you know, and travel is not just the airplane ticket, but it's the hotel, it's the meals, it's the cab rides, the everything. We're talking about, call it 10 to 20% of the cost to attend this and potentially providing better value. Everyone gets a front row seat. Everyone can interact with the speakers with high production value. This isn't a Zoom session. Look, we love Zoom. This is a highly produced event. So it is going to feel a little bit more, not all the way, but it's going to feel a little bit more like a TV show, like you're watching ESPN or a news channel than it is you're climbing onto a tired Zoom session. So I'm really hopeful about that because again, that goes back to our mission. We want to allow those creative collisions and collaboration among our community across the world. For the USA event, we're really focusing on North America, but if somebody in Ghana can learn from us, great, join us, right? It's those community banks in Idaho and Montana and Arkansas that can really learn a lot here, and they never would have come or rarely would have come to our big New York events. Love it. Love it. I'll definitely be there and, you know, looking forward to it. Wonderful. I was about to say, I'll see you there. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I fall back into the physical mindset. Good enough. Good enough. Switching gears a little bit, you know, you, you've had a front row seat to the fintech industry, not just in the U.S., but around the world. For a while now, you've seen a lot. I'm wondering, you know, from your point of view, has the progress of the industry surprised you? Has it evolved? in kind of the direction that you would have imagined? Absolutely not. And that's part of why I love it so much. It is, I mean, there are some things that we've been talking about for a long time, like bank fintech partnerships. And we were so early on that. And every year we're like, yep, we told you so. Look, bank fintech partnerships. But now we're like, holy smokes, it is. It's almost a must. And that's why, again, sort of those community banks in, in Utah and Arkansas, Nevada, everywhere around the country really need to pay attention to this fintech stuff because it's their lifeblood and technology solutions are fundamental to financial services. So that's one thing where we felt like, yeah, we, we may have called that, but maybe that was an easy one to call. One that we just totally whiffed on was the advent of peer-to-peer lending. And I hate to say it because I'm a huge fan of I really feel like regulators are doing, are trying their best. And I have high regard for the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK. I know it has its faults, but they've done some brilliant stuff. I know in the United States, regulators are trying their best. And actually, we've got some brilliant, innovative, forward-thinking regulators in office right now. I don't know if office is the right term, but they are you know, in charge of these regulators, <laughs> regulatory bodies, and really pushing forward with innovation and allowing for innovation. But peer-to-peer lending, I think, died at the hands of ill-informed and old, decrepit regulations. You know, our credit investor rules, I know they've changed slightly now, and that's wonderful, but not quite enough. The accredited investor rules are an embarrassment to our country. We 
talk a big game about serving those people that are, you know, and, and bridging the wealth gap and all that stuff, which is, of course, a noble end. But to have an accredited investor rule that says you have to have money to make money is totally wrong. And that blocked out. It really hampered peer-to-peer lending. Another piece was requirement for wet signatures. Since when did wet signature mean that it was more safe than what we can do on DocuSign? That is garbage. That also, I mean, the repercussions are, it's really hard to switch bank accounts. It's really hard to open a trust account. It's really hard to gather investors into small asset management firms. And then regulator infighting between states and federal government and sort of like, oh, who's right, who's wrong? Can you, can Lending Club, you know, provide returns to citizens of Pennsylvania? No, I still think they can't. I haven't been paying attention for years, but those are things where, We just got slaughtered by poorly thought out, slow to change regulations. And I guess I would point that one out because that was near and dear to my heart. That that was our fintech that we were building was really focused on that. And I think it's a shame that companies like Landing Club and Prosper, in order to win, had to go back to institutional capital. They could not tap into the states, the everyday citizens of the United States. And compare that with what's going on in the UK, or what has been going on, which is many lenders that were providing high returns to individuals in the UK. They just didn't have the same regulatory issues. So there are many surprises along the way. And some of them, like the one I just described, was, were negative. But boy, have we seen so much advancement. And now I think, you know, with the advent of the pandemic, you know, we just loaded this ship with rocket fuel and ignited the burners this thing is going to take off and take off quickly. It's going to be absolutely fascinating to be in our industry for the next decade. No, fascinating. And on the peer-to-peer lending front, even in places like Southeast Asia, I mean, we we had on the podcast Kelvin Teo from Funding Societies, and that's how they started peer-to-peer. And, you know, they continue that. It's thriving. They've added institutional capital but without removing the peer-to-peer lending going to you know, regular citizens, and it's working really well. So yeah, let's definitely hope that regulation keeps moving forward. Uh, I know we're seeing some change. How about forward-looking, how about some of those verticals that you're more excited about, that you're paying special attention to these days? Yeah, I mean, underwriting is super crazy right now for small business and for consumer there's a lot of really neat things that are going on in fintech and particularly in lending. I would say that we've been waiting for that time where we thought, you know, eventually we'll go through a correction or a economic condition where we can say, yeah, fintech stood the test. We didn't imagine it would be like this. We were hoping for something a little more modest to test the fintech's resilience. Um, And some fintechs will not be resilient. Some will die, no doubt about it. And that's, I guess it's just, I was going to say it's a shame, but it's just a part of the cycle. It's a shame that other parts of economy that are less, that are more risk averse. Let's take restaurants, for example, a restaurant that was doing really well and was going to survive on that corner for decades, maybe didn't survive because of this. That is a shame. For high-tech startups to die, that's just a part of it. And so I feel less, I don't feel as bad about them. Sort of that's what you asked for. Like that's what you're in. You're in the land of, massive volatility and volatility of outcome. So in all that, we get a really complex view of the consumer. The data is 
extremely challenging. It's hard to read the tea leaves in the future of the economy. It's hard to understand which consumers will be resilient. Even harder to understand which companies will be resilient. Yeah, you could say, okay, this is COVID friendly, this is COVID unfriendly business model. But the way I look at businesses and consumers is consumers have a very non volatile income stream. It's basically your wage, and they have emotional spending patterns. And yes, sometimes people get laid off. Sometimes, you know, 15% of the economy gets laid off. Those are big disruptors. Businesses are way harder because they have massively volatile income streams and less emotional, more predictable payment or expense streams. And so which one of those two is harder to predict success from? Absolutely. It's the second. It's the SMEs that are so hard to predict. Both of those are super challenging. And so I'm watching fintechs like Pedal, for example, which are really tackling this from a fundamentally different point of view to say, okay, who is a worthy borrower now? And that could be from a SME or from a consumer perspective. That's one huge area that I think is going to go through a great bunch of growth here. Payments innovation, I love because payments are about to hit this point where we can not only do card level sort of analysis and permissioning to down to the SKU level where my daughter can go in to a store and she can buy a certain type of item with my card, with my permission, not just limit on the amount or limit on the store, right? But what items is she buying? Take that out to the pandemic sort of question and say, okay, when societies or regions are in duress, can we deploy payment technologies or cards that are immediately issued, delivered to a mobile phone that allow for SKU level permissioning? So yeah, you can go buy duct tape and bread, but you can't buy booze and drugs, right? And maybe you can get all that at the same store. Maybe there's a store that would otherwise be, that's a duct tape store. Well, they, all, they also sell booze. When we can get into that SKU level permissioning, things change. And you can imagine how charity organizations, which are right now operating in 19th century, you know, trade rules could liquefy. And that's amazing. So I'm watching that. Challenger banks are making a real run at traditional banks. The fees that we face just to prop up these brick and mortar banks that we don't really need as customers of traditional banks are exorbitant and unnecessary. Um, and I think that's going to change. Biometrics and identity, kind of a slam dunk there. Super interesting stuff going on there. Reg tech, I have high hopes for it. I don't know, but I certainly hope that reg tech makes a huge impact. And then AI and ML like apply to everything. I think that that's the advent of hyper-connectivity of data is going to make a big impact and hopefully solve a lot of those problems that I just mentioned. But man, there's so much going on in our industry that is exciting. This is a great place to spend a decade or two. Oh yeah, I agree with that. Sounds like regulation is one of those, I guess, levers that can help unleash the full potential of the industry. What else, what other ingredients can help really propel FinTech forward? I think it's really coordination, open banking, open finance. And I believe there are a lot of FinTechs that are highly motivated to solve this and large big tech companies. You've got some very bright people at some very large and well-capitalized companies that are laying the 
infrastructure where we can combine data in such a way and, and find new ways to analyze risk, for example, in consumers and small businesses. In so many ways, like there's that liquidity aspect, that skew level identity and sort of liquefying money, which is super interesting to me. But perhaps the biggest impact could be if we can actually assess risk better. Banks abandoned risk. Landed fintech, media company, of course, we talked about our fragile business model. Maybe that's why we couldn't borrow money. But a seven-year-old company with plenty of revenue and profit can't get a loan from a traditional bank without a personal guarantee. So the bank is basically saying, I'm not going to take risk. Yeah, you're seven years old. Yeah, you've proven yourself. Yeah, you're a leader in your industry. On and on and on. And no, we're not going to give you a loan. And that, of course, you know, that's just a very idiosyncratic example, but that's absurd. There should be a model that we can go into that says, okay, we'll lend to you. It's going to cost you. But as you perform, your cost of capital goes down right there with it. So we might start borrowing at 20%. And over the course of, you know, let's say two years or four years, we grind that down to 8% down to 5%. And then we're just humming right along at a cost of capital that is commensurate with the risk associated with our business. That's where we need to be. And that only comes through coordination and sharing and sort of those leaps forward that we're seeing in a lot of other places outside of the States. We're starting to see a little bit here, but open banking, open finance, I think is fundamental to advancement. Got it. Got it. And so how about for Lended, right? How does the road ahead look like? I know you've talked about, obviously, adapting the business model, adapting the conference model. What else? What do you envision within the next few years for Lended? Our, our focus is really on community. We need to just stick to our knitting, do exactly what we've been doing, which is, like I said, asking the tough questions and getting our community to answer them. We can do that in a lot of different ways. I see us turning into more of a, a global organization, more of a global community. I see us becoming more 24-7. No one's going to turn on their 24-7 fintech news channel. Like That's probably not where we end up. But that whole idea that I talked about of questions need to be answered now. So this reliance on the once a year event that, yes, that's sort of where we bring together the best ideas and we do a celebration and say, oh yeah, in case you missed it, this is where we're headed. So that plays a role, but this becomes much more of a continuous news organization that is propelling the best ideas forward. And then I think you'll see some other interesting avenues that, we're, that are already underway that are, you know, sort of under the wraps, but advance the innovation in our industry, in ways that aren't being done, and really propel the best of the best forward. And I'm talking about not the privileged, but those that are less obvious. So finding a way to lift the industry from the base up. And so that we're really focused on that. We have our community about, as call it, depending on how you count it, 40 to 60,000 people that we lay claim to within our database. That should be 10 times that size right? Because innovation and financial services, financial services are anywhere between five and 20% of any company's GDP, or sorry, any country's GDP. That's a massive impact. So maybe it shouldn't be 10x, maybe it should be more like 100x, but we'll start with 10 and say, we've got to broaden our reach. We've got to get out there and expand our impact. And the good news is that 
inevitably the industry fintech specifically is only going to get bigger and, and if you're covering the industry globally then there's a big runway ahead of you so well bo before we go this has been fascinating and before we go we always like to ask our guests about their personal hobbies i'm sure you have some free time that you spend outside of your blended hours can you tell us what are some of your favorite hobbies for sure in terms of personal advancement, I'm always just feeding my brain. I am trying to take in new information from new sources. So I love to listen to my Audible and podcasts. And I think you're doing a brilliant job, Miguel. I, I love the work you're doing. So keep it up. People like you are feeding my brain and that's helping me. In terms of, you know, I mean, as soon as I knock off work, the first place I go is back to my family. So anything that involves Amy and the kids and especially if that means creating something out of nothing. I'm all for it. We love to backpack. We live in Colorado. I do a lot of cycling, road and mountain skiing. It's just taking advantage of the fresh air and getting outside. Now, part of my job that I love that takes me away from my family, sadly, is the travel. And at least I used to travel a lot. And I do love that. That is part of that feeding the brain and stretching my mind. But I don't do so much of that anymore. And that has been very nice too, I have to admit. Taking a break on travel has been wonderful for me and, and for my kids and my wife. You know, it's the standard stuff, man, but it's, it's important. It is so important. Well, well, first of all, thank you for the kind and humbling words. And, you know, also thank you for stopping by. It's truly been an honor. And, you know, we uh, absolutely hope to keep in touch. Now you are definitely a friend of Wharton. And once travel comes back, you are already invited to stop by. Same to you, man. It goes both ways. And I'm excited to meet you in person and continue the discussion. And for those of you that, are, that made it to the end of this podcast, thank you. <laughs> thank you for your, uh, your interest. And please reach out to me. I can always be reached, uh, boatlendit.com. And happy to help you in whatever way. We're just trying to advance the industry and, and move leadership forward. So appreciate what you're doing here, Miguel. Outstanding. Thank you, Bo. All right. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.